Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, a fellow registered dietitian, Mary Donkersloot. She is based in Hollywood, California, where she counsels clients and hosts a terrific YouTube series titled Mary's Smart Eating Show. Each segment is just a couple of minutes in which Mary shares her passion for good food and the pleasure that comes from cooking and sharing meals with family and friends. She also tackles and makes sense of the latest diet news, fake news, and headlines. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Melinda. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I remember meeting you at a Dietetic Association meeting. It was great to meet you in the flesh. I'd only seen you on your smart eating show. And I thought, you know, you really cover some wonderful topics. We're right with you in your beautiful kitchen. And I just (laughs) want to ask a little bit about your process. How did you start doing it? And how does your idea, your concept come to reality? Well, this is actually a very funny LA story. I have been in private practice for 25 years, more to be honest, but let's not get into the details because I don't want to reveal my age. (laughs) Uh, But my son was going off to college and I was in sort of that mode of like, what am I going to do? He's my only child and I have a busy practice. I have a great life. But I thought, hmm. So my hairdresser in Beverly Hills, my office is actually not in Hollywood. It's in Beverly Hills. A little different to us locals. And so my hairdresser said, Mary, you should be doing Instagram. You should be doing YouTube. You should be doing all the social media. And I said, no, Terrence, I can't. I can't. He said, I'll help you. So he bought a couple of lights. We got the microphone. He got the camera. He came to my office. We started shooting them around town. He came to my house. And I was having a ball with them. We came up with a name. He was going to be Smart Eating, and then that was already taken, so we had to do Smart Eating Show. And we started doing it. And I'm telling you, it's been my son is a senior now, and he's going to graduate from college. He'll be home soon, which is a whole other set of being nervous. But at any rate, that's how I started it. Was I just? It was a fun project, and it's really. It's a community service. It's something I don't do for any other reason than to provide this information to my clients, my friends, my family. And, you know, I'd like, of course, to have it go beyond because I do get such good feedback from them. I think what one of the biggest compliments I get from them is people say, I always learn something. There's always a takeaway nugget. So writing them now has become like doing a crossword puzzle. Yeah. Which, by the way, I'm horrible at. But I really have fun because it's easy to write something that's long, but it's trickier to write something that's concise and short and that still says something. So that's exactly <laughs> that's right. My story. Well, I am sitting here in the Midwest and you are in sunny, beautiful California. We go into your kitchen, it's lovely. You have your props in front of you, the foods that you're going to be talking about that day. You're always dressed like you do indeed live in Beverly Hills. And it's sort of like going into this kitchen spa landscape. And like you say, the viewer comes away with really great tips. And I wanted to talk to you today because 
anytime we get into a different season that demands a body focus. So mm-hmm. end of the year, new year, we're talking about, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I want to lose weight. Then right. it's swimsuit season. You know, then it's mm-hmm. some other, oh, we're getting together with our families. We want to look our best, whatever. And there isn't a day that goes by where there isn't something in the news that is ultra compelling, that it's very difficult to navigate. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, reflect on some of your recent shows and just ask you to review some of the topics. And maybe I should start out simply by asking you, though, how do you come to the topics that you discuss? Oh, that's a really easy one. I see patients during the week in my office. I have a private practice. Inevitably, somebody asks me a question or some subject comes up and I think, boom, that's it. There's my video. In fact, yesterday, I was at a supermarket And I just returned from the nutrition conference in Philadelphia, and I'm in the fire zone, adjacent. And my son called me and said, Mom, you've got to evacuate. You've got to take some things out of the house, the precious things. And so I thought, okay, I need to get some food in the house. I really wasn't going to evacuate. So I went to the market, and I thought, I'm not going to cook. I can't. I've got too much going on. So I went to the deli counter, and I bought about six things. It cost me a fortune, but... I wanted some food. And just as I was finishing, someone hollered, Mary, and it was a mom from my son's high school. She said, do you remember me? She said, I watch your show every week. I'm obsessed with your show. And I just watched what you were buying. And so we were going over what I was buying. I had some ancient grains. I had a spinach salad with grapes. I had another shrimp little dish with dill and some mayonnaise. I had some tuna salad. And I had this antioxidant salad full of broccoli and carrots. And so it was like my food for the next couple of days. And she said to me, there's your show. Yeah. And that's how it happens. It's like real life. Like I am not a perfectionist. And there's no such thing as perfect eating. And there's no such thing as a perfect body. But when you eat well most of the time, it helps you to avoid that cycle of dieting that we all know is counterproductive. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to go through some titles because I think that they are extremely (laughs) pertinent. Your topics are always just right on. And I understand just from a, a person who used to write a newspaper column, that's exactly how I got my topics too. You know, I'd overhear right. a conversation or I'd watch what somebody was buying in the supermarket or somebody might ask me a question and I thought, well, right. if one person wants to know, I'm sure mm-hmm. many more people are wondering the same thing. Mm-hmm. So carbohydrates, this is probably the biggest issue right now. I, I have so. friends who are keto diet followers And I have other friends who are at the opposite end of the spectrum. They are high carbohydrate, but high fiber. Yes, some vegans all over the map. What do you tell people when they ask you about carbohydrates and keto diets in particular? Do you have any thoughts on that? You're not going to believe this. This is the video I am shooting tomorrow. I'm not kidding you. Great. And and so you're, you're really nailing it. And I actually have it right in front of me. The opening line is, do you know how many times a day a dietitian gets asked about keto? I want to tear my hair out. Yes. So once and for all, I'm going to answer the question. So the answer is that there are certain things about keto that are very helpful when it comes to diabetes and weight loss. And there are certain casualties of keto that are sad. So the good thing is that we have learned that a good amount of fat in our meal from olive oil or avocado or nuts can really help us 
to displace those starchy carbohydrates because people have come to eat too much rice and pasta and potatoes and bread and pizza crust and donuts. And so when you cut back on those starchy carbohydrates and you replace them with healthy fat, it helps to lower blood sugar levels in Mm -hmm. people who have prediabetes or diabetes. And of course, you'll lose weight when you cut out all those starchy foods. But if you don't add back the extra fat, you will sabotage your effort because you're going to be hungry, and then you end up out of control, Mm -hmm. and you overeat the setup. So for example, you add a half of an avocado to your eggs in the morning, or you add a handful of nuts or seeds to your salad. And that way, you don't need the starchier food to be satisfied between the meals or, or as much of it. So in other words, let's say you want oatmeal for breakfast. Instead of eating one or two cups of oatmeal, you eat a half or one cup of oatmeal and you put in a handful of walnuts. So you get much more healthy fat from the walnuts than you do from the, and, and you get rid of some of the starchy carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? Absolutely. So, now, that's not necessary for everyone, but if you have diabetes or prediabetes, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have the egg, the question is, do you have a piece of whole grain sprouted wheat toast with your egg and the avocado? And the answer is, it depends on your carbohydrate tolerance. So if you have diabetes, you need to see a dietitian to figure out if you need 25 or 30 grams of carbohydrate at your meal or 35 to 40 or 50 or depends on your size, your age, how active you are. You need to know your carbohydrate tolerance if you have diabetes. And if you want to lose weight, I think it's the same. So I think that the problem with keto is it's like instead of 25 or 30 grams of carbohydrate per meal, which is where I start with people with diabetes, it's 25 or 30 grams of carbohydrate per day. Exactly. And that's really low. And the casualty of that is fiber. Yes. So And mostly vegetables. So people... It's so low in carbs, you can't eat very many veggies, and veggies should be the cornerstone of any diet. Right. And for fruit, forget it on keto. You really can't even have any fruit. So I usually recommend a couple, four servings a day, but if you have diabetes or prediabetes, you probably want to limit your fruits to one or two a day, you know, depending on how many carbs you tolerate. So Mm -hmm. if you're a 70-year-old woman who's five feet tall, you don't have a lot of tolerance. But if you're a, a 35-year-old man who exercises a lot, you need a lot more. So right. it depends on the situation. Exactly. The, the bottom line, instead of keto, we can learn from keto, but really what we want is healthy fat. We, we don't, you know, keto people, my keto friends, they want to eat steak and bacon, and they like, oh, this is great. And those are the people usually, quite frankly, who are happy not to eat their vegetables. Yeah. That's another story. But... What I'm recommending is healthy fat plus the right amount of protein and a controlled amount of high-fiber carbohydrates, mostly vegetables, mm-hmm. and that's smart eating. Exactly. And that yeah. is the send-off line for all of your shows. You give an example of what smart eating looks like, and it's practical, it's doable, it's friendly, and it's fun, and all of that in less than three minutes. So do you have a time frame? Like, will you not go beyond a certain time limit? Well, interestingly enough, in the beginning, they were one minute because at the time, Instagram only allowed for one-minute videos, and that's where I was doing them. So I had to really keep them short. And then I realized I needed two minutes to get enough across. Yeah. And I recently was going to do a series for kids, how to feed kids and how to prevent overweight in children because I work with a lot of pediatricians, and they're always begging me for information. Yeah. And so 
a number of people said to me, well, I'd kind of like more information. And so I thought, well, I could do some longer ones. I did one on how to prevent picky eating in your children. And I got all the physicians who refer to me watch my videos, and they were I had three pediatricians write to me and say, could you give us a printed out copy of that so we can hand it out to our patients? And one pediatrician wants me to put it on an iPad so he can have the videos in his waiting room for his patients to watch while they're waiting in their office. Exactly. That would be great. Well, yeah, I haven't gone there yet. I, I need a, a tech genius to do that for me. But by the way, I haven't always been in Beverly Hills. I grew up on a little farm in Iowa, right down the road from you in Missouri, my dear. Yes, that's right. And then you got your degree in nutrition from South Dakota State University. Yes, I did. Then you went on to Oregon Health Sciences University Mm -hmm. in Portland. So you've had a wide view of food in different landscapes. And I think that's really Mm -hmm. helpful for a dietitian to understand different cultural and ethnic ways of eating. But it's beautiful that you put these series of videos together. And what I like about the length being just a little over two minutes is I can get a helpful nugget in two and a half minutes or less. Mm -hmm. But I think I like the freedom to say, I think I'm going to watch another one of these or another one rather than feeling like I have to sit down for 10 minutes. So personally, I like the short video viewing. And I really think that that seems to be a trend of our times is like shorter is better, but it's absolutely, as you say, harder. You make it look easy, but I agree. It's it's very difficult. Now, I need to take one break, Mary. We are at the halfway point, and I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mary Donkersloot. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She is based in Beverly Hills, and we are talking specifically about wonderful segments that she puts together titled Mary's Smart Eating Show. I enjoy listening to all of them. Another one that you did that I wanted to touch on because it's been in the news and I think we struggle whenever something is in the media where one day it's good and the next day it's bad, people throw Mm -hmm. up their hands and say, I think I'm going to go back to smoking again. There's just so much conflict and people don't know what to do. What about red meat? Yeah, when that came in the news, all my clients were saying, you know, what is this? And I read about it myself. I was asking myself, what is this? And I think it was it was very confusing for people. And people tend to, you know, it's like Republicans and Democrats. They want to hear, we're not going to go there, but it's it's about what, you hear what you want to hear. Yeah. So people who love red meat really liked it, and people who are vegan didn't like it. And so I'm not sure how many people it changed, but... I think it's pretty clear that the evidence is overwhelming that too much red meat is not a good thing, mm-hmm. but that a moderate amount is okay, and that if I have a hamburger on the 4th of July, it's not going to take my diet down. Right. So I, I tend to be a flexitarian, meaning I'll you know, I eat mostly vegetarian and fish, but I occasionally eat meat or sausage. I'm flexible in that way. Yeah. But... More importantly, what I wanted to get across there is that it's not about an individual food like red meat. It's about an overall eating pattern. So if you're somebody who eats a lot of meat and not very many vegetables, that's not a good food pattern. And so what I wrote about in there was how certain foods actually prevent cancer. And I thought it was so interesting. And I had gotten that from uh, the nutrition conference last year, the Institute of Cancer, puts out a 
guide of every year about updating about the research they have. So, for example, apples slow the development of colon, lung, and breast cancer cells in several stages of cancer development. Broccoli, arugula, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, and on and on, they turn on the genes that suppress tumors. They slow cancer growth. They stimulate cancer cell self-destruction. Coffee has some benefits. Reduces inflammation. Increases self-destruction of cancer cells. So listen, when you start thinking about soy products and flax seeds and garlic and how they reduce the carcinogen's ability to initiate cancer in the first place, you start thinking, okay, if I have a piece of red meat, that's not the issue. The issue is getting all these plant foods because what we want is to move toward a plant-based diet for the planet and for our health. Exactly. And so that's kind of where I came down on that one. Yeah. I think it's so frustrating for people, though, to try to make sense out of all of this. But really, our our dietary guidelines, even if we look globally at dietary guidelines, they Mm -hmm. all pretty much say the same thing, which is take your time, enjoy your food, but make sure it's mostly plant-based. And it's hard to do when you're on the road. I mean, you set a really good example for your friend what you were buying at the deli case. You weren't buying a ton of sliced meat to make sandwiches during right. times of panic when you might have to evacuate or not. But you were buying vegetable salads and you were finding ways to still meet those dietary guidelines, but in a different setting. Right. All right. So let's also move into some of your other show titles because they're really, they're all good. They all somehow come together. You see patients with inflammatory bowel diseases. They seem to be a hot topic right now. I too came back from the dietetic conference in Philadelphia. There were lots of sessions on the microbiome and fiber and inflammatory bowel conditions. I'm assuming that you see many patients who suffer with that? I do, and I see a lot of eating disorders, and a lot of times they go hand in hand, mm. and sometimes we, we have to figure out which comes first, the eating disorder or the, the irritable bowel, but it often can be an underlying anxiety because that vagal nerve is connected from the gut to the brain, and there's more serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain. So I think one of the brilliant things that we dietitians have learned about is this FODMAP diet, and that's been pretty revolutionary for people to identify which carbohydrates their bodies aren't able to digest very well. And so when they you can't digest them, they produce gas, and that produces bloating, and that produces pain. So the FODMAPs are fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And it's various fruits and vegetables, and, and you'd be surprised. So all, a lot of foods that we think are healthy, for people with irritable bowel problems, it causes them pain. Mm. Apples, for example, onions, garlic, cauliflower can be difficult for people. Sorbitol, those diet kinds of candies can be problematic. So what you have to do if you have irritable bowel is you have to go on a phase of a diet, of the diet where you eliminate all the usual offenders. And you do that for two to six weeks. And then around eight weeks, you reintroduce them one at a time. You challenge yourself with, with one of the foods that's high in either fructose or lactose or sorbitol or mannitol or whatever. And then you see what if you get a symptom. And you do it one day, to a little bit more the next day, the third day. And if you have a problem, of course, you stop. 
So it's based on timing, it's based on quantity, but it really helps to give you information. And then step three is you personalize the whole thing and you figure out which foods work for you. And at least if you decide that you're going to eat an apple or, or broccoli, that you might be prepared for some GI discomfort and you decide, okay, I'm just going to pay the price and I'm going to have that. Mm-hmm. But that has been, for so many people who suffer from irritable bowel and could just never figure out, like, why do I get this? What is the problem? So anyway, it's been around for, I don't know, 20 years or so. It's not brand new, but it's becoming increasingly popular, and most gastroenterologists recommend it. But it's really good to have a dietitian who's well-versed in it who can help you if you need help to go through it because it's it's complicated. It is complicated. Mm-hmm. The sessions that I really enjoyed about the whole gut-brain relationship were it was in a pre-conference session and it was mm-hmm. they were talking about the gut-brain axis. And as you mentioned about the serotonin, I think that we have not given the gut enough credit for all of the things that it does. Like some of the presenters were referring to it as a second brain Mm -hmm. and how these connections are so vital in terms of what we eat and how we feel. So we also have immunity in our gut. The Mm -hmm. serotonin, as you mentioned, the mood issues related to the kinds of foods we eat. The component of our diet that always rises to the top, though, happens to be fiber. Yes, it does. Yeah. And the more I learn about this gut-brain axis, the more I realize, wow, fiber is key. And the other thing that I learned at the conference was there were many GI specialists talking about the harm from artificial sweeteners. And they are everywhere in our diet. They are. And I don't know about your counseling with your clients, but I have heard enough to be convinced that I am advising people, if you're going to use use a little bit of sugar or a little bit of honey or maple yeah. syrup, seems to yeah. be preferable over any kind of artificial sweetener. Yes, well, I agree. Again, just kind of like with the meat thing, instead of getting in, is, is it good or is it bad? The overall goal is to have a diet that's not so sweet, that we yes. need to decondition ourselves to, to away from this diet that's so high in sugar. And this is one of the things that bothers me about vegan food. You go to a vegan restaurant, and everything has sugar in it. I was at an event the other night, and it was vegan. I was in Joshua Tree in the desert, and I we went to this performance, and there was vegan food there, and I had some. Well, it was tossed with orange marmalade. It was some kind of a vegetable. I can't remember what it was. But it was sweet, and I just, that's so often with vegan food, they must feel that it needs extra flavor instead of the meat flavor, so they add sugar. And sugar is the villain. Sugar Mm -hmm. is worse for us, in my opinion, than any kind of meat. And I'm not talking about the planet now, but in terms of our health. Mm -hmm. So, But I wanted to say one other thing about the um, the microbiome in the gut. And there was one lecture I listened to about SIBO, small bowel bacterial overgrowth, which I also see a lot of but that gut-directed yoga, or just yoga, it's like the yoga that I do, I'm not very you know, serious about it, but once or twice a week I try to do a yoga class. And they found that the yoga had as much benefit for people with irritable bowel as the diet. Wow. So I thought that was pretty great. Just how much stress and sleep and those kind of things can affect irritable bowel. So I think it really takes a combination. If you have bowel issues... To make sure you sleep, get stay well hydrated, figure out the right foods, do yoga, exercise, get outside, don't sit too much. So all of those things can be really helpful to 
control all those bowel issues, diarrhea, constipation, whichever type of irritable bowel you tend to have. Yeah. Well, you know, Mary, it's interesting, the gut-brain axis that we were talking about earlier. The other message that I failed to bring up that I heard at the conference was that it is bi-directional, which speaks to your point about yoga, that if you're reducing stress, you're also going to reduce GI problems. Right. Yeah. Okay. We just have a few minutes left and I want to just ask you to bring forth any of the topics that your clients have brought to you that you've done shows on that you're especially wanting to promote because we want to help our listeners get to your website. And I'll just read that off really quickly. It's marydonkersloot.com slash smart dash eating dash show. And I will provide a link to that. But think about for a minute, what's some of the more common questions and therefore shows that you've done that you'd like to share? I always prefer to talk about the future rather than the past. But Good. So I want to tell you about another one that I'm working on that's Good. going to come up soon. And that is about interventions with overweight children. Mm. Because I, over the years, have gotten calls from parents saying, you know, my eight-year-old, I just had a call yesterday from a mom who's 14, and they saw me a couple years ago, and they wanted to come back because now her cholesterol is high. She weighs 160 pounds, and she's 5'4". But parents are often reticent to intervene because they're afraid of creating an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do you intervene with a child without triggering an eating disorder? I mean, the first thing is always do no harm. Right. You want to promote healthy habits, and you want to stay away from rigid deprivation kind of dieting. And the kids, as well as the parents, you don't want the parents to be dieting. Right. So parents often want me to tell the kids what to eat, but... It's really about the parent taking control, especially when I have younger kids, six, eight, ten, or little kids, so that the whole family has to get involved. You can't just single out a child. I love it when the whole family comes into my office and we go around the room and everybody tells me a little bit about their diet. Mm -hmm. And it's always, they laugh, and I have the rule, you can only tell me about your diet. You you can't tell me about another person in the family's diet, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because everyone likes to bust everyone else. Right. And so it becomes a really fun thing, but you have to keep it positive. And parents have to be really in tune with the kids' hunger. You know, after school, kids are meal hungry. They're not snack hungry. They don't want carrots after school. They want a quesadilla with some carrots, or they want some chicken noodle soup, or they want a taco. So parents have to be there. If they just have chips, my kid just keeps eating cookies and chips, or but that's what's in the house. So... You have to control the, the parent's job is to control what's in the environment. And if, if you have yummy food around, kids are going to eat it. They don't need pita chips or protein bars. They need a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk. Yeah. Anyway, I love working with children and there has to be no weight talk. There does not need to be a discussion about weight. I mean, the kids shouldn't know their parents' weight. The parents shouldn't be dieting. Everyone should be figuring out how to eat. You don't want forbidden foods. You want to be flexible. Mm-hmm. So, because kids eat what they're familiar with. But I want to remind everyone that you can catch Mary's programs at marydonkersloot.com slash smart dash eating dot show. We will wait with great anticipation to hear about your 
healthy children's eating series. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, fellow registered dietitian, Mary Donkersloot. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you, Melinda. It's been a pleasure. 